0: welcome to the time machine talk show here's your host miss ziegler Welcome back to the Time Machine Talk Show. In this episode, we will be starting on page 233 of the Ways of the World Strayer textbook, and we will be talking about patriarchies. Now, one of your essays that you will be writing or that you could possibly be asked about on the AP exam is change and continuity. We haven't talked much about it yet this year, but... Continuity basically means things that stay the same. And one very important continuity that happens throughout world history is the pattern of patriarchy. Patriarchy is a male-dominated society. So you want to pay close attention when we're talking about comparing patriarchies in this text And make sure that you highlight or bullet point off to the side that this is continuity and this is something that you need to remember so that if you're asked about a continuity, you know, from the second wave civilizations or onward, you can talk about this. You can even compare it with the early river civilizations as well. So let's look at your questions here. Your first question that we're trying to answer is, in what ways did the expression of Chinese patriarchy change over time? And why did it change? Okay, so our reading question focuses on the change, but we're also going to make some notes on continuity as well. Okay, so here we go. Page 233. Social inequality was embedded not only in the structures of class, caste, and slavery, but also in the gender systems of second-wave civilization. As the patriarchies of the first civilizations were replicated and elaborated in those that followed... Until quite recently, women's subordination in all civilizations has been so widespread and pervasive that historians have been slow to recognize that gender systems had a history changing over time. New agricultural technologies, the rise or decline of powerful states, the incorporation of world religion, interaction with culturally different people, All of these developments and more generated significant change in understandings of what was appropriate masculine and feminine behavior. So you can see that these gender changes happen all throughout time for specific reasons. Most often, patriarchies were lighter and less restrictive for women in the early years of civilization's developments and during times of upheaval when established patterns of male dominance were disrupted. Furthermore, women were often active agents in the histories of their societies, even while largely accepting their overall subordination. As the central figures in family life, they served as repositories and transmitters of their people's culture. So kind of like storytellers or people that are going to pass on the history. Some were able to occupy unorthodox and occasionally prominent positions outside the home as scholars religious functionality, functionaries, managers of property, and participants in commerce, and even as rulers or military leaders. So unorthodox would be like outside of the box, things that they didn't normally do. In Britain, Egypt, and Vietnam, for example, women-led efforts to resist their country's incorporation into the Roman and Chinese empires. So you can see the example in the portrait of Trung Trac, and the Statue of Buddhika, those are on pages 134 and 132. Both Buddhist and Christian nuns carved out small domains of relative freedom from male control. But these changes or challenges to male dominance occurred within a patriarchal framework, and nowhere did they evolve out of or beyond that framework. Thus, a kind of patriarchal equilibrium ensured the long-term persistence of women's subordination despite fluctuations and notwithstanding various efforts to redefine gender roles or push against gendered expectations. Nor was patriarchy everywhere the same. Of course it's not, right? Restrictions on women were far sharper in urban-based civilizations than in those of pastoral or agricultural societies that lay beyond the reach of cities and empires. The degree of expression of patriarchy also varied from one civilization to another, As the discussion of Mesopotamia and Egypt in Chapter 2 illustrated, and within particular civilizations, elite women enjoyed both privileges and suffered the restrictions of seclusion in the home to a much greater extent than their lower class counterparts, whose economic circumstances required them to operate in the larger social arena. China provides a fascinating example of how patriarchy changed over time, while the contrasting patriarchy of Athens and Sparta illustrate clear variations even within the much smaller world of the Greek civilization. So that description that we just read is kind of like an overview, okay? Now it's going to get more specific. And the question we're looking at is in what ways did the expression of Chinese patriarchy change over time, and why did it change? And then we're also gonna look for any continuities. All right, here we go. As Chinese civilization took shape during the Han Dynasty, elite thinking about gender issues became more explicitly patriarchal, more clearly defined, and linked to an emerging Confucian ideology. So remember that in China, it's linked to Confucianism. Long established patterns of thinking in terms of pairs of opposites were now described in gendered and unequal terms. The superior principle of yang was viewed as masculine and related to heaven, ruler, strength, rationality, and light, whereas yin, the lower feminine principle, was associated with the earth, subjects, weakness, emotion, and darkness. Thus, female inferiority was permanent and embedded in the workings of the universe. Kind of like the Chinese didn't have any other choice. It was embedded. It was just the way that the universe worked. What, was this, or what this meant more practically was spelled out repeatedly over the centuries in various Confucian texts. Two notions in particular summarize the ideal position of women, at least in the eyes of elite male writers. The adage, men go out, women stay in, emphasized the public and political roles of men in the contrast to the domestic and private domain of women. A second idea, known as the three obediences, emphasized a woman's subordination first to her father, then to her husband, and finally to her son. Why is it, asked one text, that according to the rights, the man takes his wife, whereas the woman leaves her house to join her husband's family? It is because the yin is lowly and should not have the initiative. It proceeds to the yang in order to be completed. What do you think of that, ladies? (laughs) All right. The Chinese woman writer and court official, Ban Zhao, observed that the ancients had practiced three customs when a baby girl was born. She was placed below the bed to show that she was lowly and weak, required always to humble herself before others, Then she was given a piece of broken pottery to play with, signifying that her primary duty was to be industrious. Finally, her birth was announced to the ancestors with an offering to indicate that she was responsible for the continuation of ancestor worship in the home. Yet such notions of passivity, inferiority, and subordination were not the whole story of woman's life in ancient China a few women particularly the wives concubines and widows of empire emperors were able to on occasion exercise considerable political authority so overall women were inferior and subordinate to men however there were some exceptions and that's what this is going to talk about right here several others led peasant rebellions in doing so they provoked Much anti-female hostility on the part of male officials, who understood governess as a masculine task and often blamed the collapse of a dynasty or natural disasters on the unnatural and disruptive influence of women in political affairs. Others, however, praised women of virtue as wise counselors to their fathers, husbands, and rulers and depicted them positively as active agents. So the exception to the rule could be the wives of emperors who would take over. You can put down that some led peasant rebellions and some were involved in government or uh, advising their husbands. Within her husband's family, a young woman was clearly subordinate as a wife and a daughter in law, but as a mother of sons, she was accorded considerable honor for her role in producing the next generation of male heirs to carry on her husband's lineage, or lineages like family, to carry that on, to carry on his name. When her sons married, she was able to exercise the significant authority of a mother in law. Furthermore, a woman, at least in the upper classes, often brought with her a considerable dowry, which was regarded as her own property and gave her some leverage within her marriage. So put down that upper class women were allowed to keep their dowries as their property. Dowry is kind of like money or gifts that a man would get when he married his wife from her family. Women's roles in the production of textiles, often used to pay taxes or to sell commercially, made her labor quite valuable to the family economy. And a man's wife was sharply distinguished from his concubines, for she was legally mother to all her husband's children. Furthermore, peasant women could hardly follow the Confucian ideal of seclusion in the home as their labor was required in the fields. So you can put down that some women worked in labor such as the production of textiles, that the man's wife was the one that would have the most rights over his concubines, and that peasant women worked in the fields. Thus, women's life were more complex and varied than the prescriptions of Confucian orthodoxy might suggest. Much changed in China following the collapse of the Han dynasty in the 3rd century CE. All right, so we're looking for change, You can say centralized government vanished amid much political fragmentation and conflict. Confucianism, the main ideology of Han China, was discredited, while Taoism and Buddhism attracted a growing following. Pastoral and nomadic peoples invaded northern China and ruled a number of the small states that replaced the Han government. These new conditions resulted in some loosening of strict patriarchy of Han China over the next five or six years. So the change happens after the Han dynasty uh, collapses. And ideas of Confucianism kind of go out the window a little bit. And Taoism and Buddhism come in and influence the government. You can also put down the invasions from nomadic people in the north are going to change the ways up there in northern China. The cultural influence of nomadic peoples whose women were far less restricted than those of China were noticed and criticized by more Confucian-minded male observers. One of them lamented the sad deterioration of gender roles under the influence of nomadic people. That means that he was really sad about it. Okay, this is what he says. In the north of the Yellow River, it is usually the wife who runs the household. She will not dispense with good clothing or expensive jewelry. The husband has to settle for old horses and sickly servants. The traditional niceties between husband and wife are seldom observed, and from time to time he even has to put up with her insults. Like, how dare women stick up for themselves? That's basically what he's saying there. Others criticize the adoption of nomadic styles of dress, makeup, and music. By the time the Tang dynasty, writers and artists depicted elite women as capable of handling legal business affairs on their own and on occasion riding horses. Oh, the nerve of riding a horse. And playing polo, bareheaded, and wearing men's clothes. Oh my word, like that's just too much, right? That's what they're thinking. Tang legal codes even recognized a married daughter's right to inherit property from her family of birth. Such images of women were quite different from those of the Han dynasty. So you can say that by the time the Tang dynasty came in, all of these outside influences of Taoism and Buddhism and the nomads gave women a lot more freedom. They were able to even ride horses in some you know, aspects. And this, to us, seems really weird, right? Because we have a lot of freedom for women in today's world. However, it just wasn't like that back then. You could tell by reading about the Han Dynasty, right? So, if you were asked this question, you have to be able to show change. You would talk about it, how it was in the Han Dynasty, and you give a specific example. You know, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, so, you could put down that in the Han Dynasty, women were completely subordinate to men. They didn't speak up for themselves, they took care of the home. Whereas, for the a, after, The Han Dynasty collapse and Daoism and Buddhism become more important and pastoral nomads kind of spread their culture into the Chinese society by the time the Tang Dynasty takes over women have more freedom such as being able to uh, handle their own legal and business affairs and ride horses so you see how that worked you showed what it was like during the Han Dynasty you told what caused the change and then you told the, you know, you wrapped it up by telling the end of the change. That's very, very important. If in your essay you only told what it was like during the Han Dynasty and you didn't tell why it changed, you would not get the point for that. So it's very important when you're showing change that you show what it was like before, why it changes, and what it's like after. All three are needed in order to get the point. All right, let's go on. It says a further sign of a weakening patriarchy and the cause of great distress to advocates of Confucian orthodoxy lay in the unusual reign of Empress Wu, a former high-ranking concubine in the imperial court who came to power amid much palace intrigue and was the only woman ever to rule China with the title of emperor. With the support of China's growing Buddhist establishment, Empress Wu governed despotically, But she also consolidated China's civil service examination system for the selection of public officials and actively patronized scholarship and the arts. Despotically means that she was a tyrannical ruler. People had uh, few rights underneath her leadership. So she was kind of like a dictator almost. Which is interesting because women weren't supposed to have that type of role, let alone, um, you know, be emperor but then to like be a tyrannical emperor very interesting some of her actions seemed deliberately designed to elevate the position of women she commissioned the biographies of famous women decreed that the mourning period for mothers be made equal to the that for fathers and ordered the creation of a chinese character for human being that suggested the process of birth flowing from one woman without a prominent male role her reign was brief and unrepeated The growing popularity of Taoism provided new images of the feminine and new roles for women. Taoist texts referred to the Tao as mother and urged the traditionally feminine virtues of yielding and passive acceptance rather than the male-oriented striving of Confucianism. Taoist sects often featured women as priests, nuns, or reclusive mediators able to receive cosmic truth and to use it for the benefit of others. A variety of female deities for Taoist and Buddhist traditions found a place in Chinese village religion, while growing numbers of women found an alternative to family life in Buddhist monasteries. None of this meant an end to patriarchy, but it does suggest some change in the tone and expression of that patriarchy. However, during the Song dynasty that followed, a more restrictive patriarchy re-emerged. So in your AP curriculum, it requires you to know of at least one example of the influences of Taoism on the development of Chinese culture. This one would be a very good one. You can put down that Taoism leads to more freedoms for women and more change for women because it gives them a little bit more quality and importance. Uh, For example, you can say that Tao text really urged the feminine virtues of yielding and passive acceptance rather than a male-oriented dominance over them, okay? So that's important to remember. All right, our next question, how did the patriarchies of Athens and uh, Sparta differ from each other? That's going to be in the next section. It says the patriarchies of second-wave civilizations not only fluctuated over time, but also varied considerably from place to place. Nowhere is this variation more apparent than in the contrasting cases of Athens and Sparta, two of the leading city-states of Greek civilization. Even within this same area, the opportunities available to women and the restrictions imposed on them differed substantially. Although Athens had been celebrated as a major expression of democracy and rationalism, its posture toward women was far more restrictive than that of the highly militaristic and much less democratic Sparta. That's kind of interesting, right? Because you would think that in a democracy like Athens that they wouldn't be as restrictive on women, but it was just the opposite. In the several centuries between 700 and 400 BCE, as the free male citizens of Athens moved toward unprecedented participation in political life, the city's women experienced growing limitations. They had no role whatsoever in the assembly, the councils, or the juries of Athens, which were increasingly the focus of life for free men. In legal matters, women had to be represented by a guardian and court proceedings did not even refer to them by name, but only as someone's wife or mother. So for Athens, I would put down a bullet point that talks about how they have no role in the government and they cannot represent themselves in court. Greek thinkers, especially Aristotle, provided a set of ideas that justified women's exclusion from public life and their general subordination to men. According to Aristotle, a woman is, as it were, an infertile male. She is female, in fact, on account of a kind of inadequacy. That inadequacy lay in her inability to generate sperm, which contained the form or the soul of a new human being. Her role in the reproductive process was passive, providing a receptacle for the vital male contribution. So basically, men are getting all the credit here. Compared often to children or domesticated animals, women were associated with instinct and passion and lacked the rationality to take part in public life. It is the best uh, for all tame animals to be ruled by human beings, wrote Aristotle, in the same way the relationship between the male and the female is by nature such that the male is higher than the f- and the female lower that the male rules and the female is ruled. As in China, elite Athenian women were expected to remain inside the home, except perhaps for religious festivals or funerals, so put that down for Athens. Even within the home, women's space was quite separate from that of men. Although poor women, courtesans, and prostitutes had to leave their homes to earn money, collect water or shop, ideal behavior for upper-class women assigned these tasks to slaves or to men and involved a radical segregation of male and female space. What causes a woman a bad reputation, wrote the Greek playwright, is not remaining inside. Within the domestic realm, Athenian women were generally married in their mid-teens to men 10 to 15 years older than themselves. Think about that, ladies. Like, you'd be married right now to older men. Mm, Doesn't sound fun to me. Their main function was the management of uh, domestic affairs and the production of sons who would become active citizens. These sons were expected to acquire a literate education while their sisters were normally limited to learning spinning, weaving, and other household tasks. So you can put down that the women were not educated for the most part. They were just taught how to manage a household while men went and got the education. The Greek writer Menander explained teaching a woman to read and write, what a terrible thing to do, like feeding a vile snake on more poison. Hmm. Nor did women have much economic power. Although they could own personal property obtained through dowries, gifts, or inheritance, land was usually passed through female heirs. By law, women were forbidden to buy or sell land and could negotiate uh, contracts only with the sum involved was valued at less than a bushel of barley, so they were limited on personal property. There were exceptions, although rare, to the restricted lives of upper-class Athenian women, the most notable of which was Aspasia. She was born in the Greek city of Miletus on the western coast of Anatolia to a wealthy family that believed in educating its daughters. As a young woman, Aspasia found her way to Athens, where her foreign birth gave her somewhat more freedom than was normally available to the women of the city. She soon attracted the attention of Pericles, Athens' leading political figure. The two lived together as husband and wife until Pericles' death in 429 BCE. Though they were not officially married, treated as equal partner by Pericles, Aspasia proved to be a learned and witty conversationalist who moved freely in the cultured circles of Athens. Her foreign birth and her apparent influence on Pericles provoked critics to suggest that she was a heritia, a professional, educated, high-class entertainer and sexual companion similar to a Japanese geisha. Although little is known about Aspatia and the number of major Athenian writers commented about her, both positively and neg- negatively, she was by all accounts a rare and remarkable woman in a city that offered little opportunity for individuality or achievement to its female population. The evolution of Sparta differed in many ways from that of Athens. So here it's going to talk about Spartan- Sparta now. Early on, Sparta solved the problems of feeding a growing population not by creating overseas colonies, as did many Greek city-states, but by conquering their immediate neighbors and reducing them to the status of permanent servitude, not far removed from slavery. Called helots, these dependents far outnumbered the free citizens of Sparta and represented a permanent threat of rebellion. Solving this problem shaped Sparta's society decisively. Sparta's answer was a militaristic regime Constantly ready for war to keep the helots in their place. To maintain such a system, all boys were removed from their family at the age of seven to be trained by the state in military camps, where they learned the ways of war. There they remained until the age of 30. The ideal Spartan mare, uh, male was a warrior, skilled in battle, able to endure hardship, and willing to die for his city. Mothers are said to have told their sons departing for battle, to come back with your shield or on it. Although economic equality for men uh, was ideal, it was never completely practiced, uh, realized in practice. And unlike Athens, political power was exercised primarily by a small group of wealthy men. This militaristic and far more democratic system had implications for women that strongly enough offered them greater freedoms and fewer restrictions. So put that down for Sparta, that they had greater freedoms and fewer restrictions. And then it's going to get into the details. As in many warrior societies, their central task was reproduction, bearing warrior sons for Sparta. To strengthen their bodies for childbearing, girls were encouraged to take part in sporting events, running, wrestling, throwing the discus and javelin, Even driving chariots. At times, women and men alike completed or competed in the nude before mixed audiences. Their education, like that of boys, was prescribed by the state, which was also insisted that newly married women cut their hair short, unlike adult Greek women elsewhere. Thus Spartan women were not secluded or segregated as were their Athenian counterparts. So some of the details you could put down is that they participated in sports, they were not as segregated as they were in Athens. Furthermore, Spartan young women, unlike those of Athens, usually married men of their own age, about 18 years old, thus putting the new couple in a more equal basis. Marriage often began with a trial period to make sure the new couple could produce children, with divorce and remarriage readily available if they could not. Because men were so often away at war or preparing for it, women exercised much more authority in the household then was the case in Athens. It is little wonder that the freedom of Spartan women appalled other Greeks, who believed that it undermined good order and state authority. Aristotle complained that the more egalitarian inheritance practices of the Spartans led to their women controlling some 40% of landed estates. In Sparta, he declared women live in every sort of intemperance and luxury, and the male rulers are ruled by women. Plutarch, a Greek writer during the heyday of the Roman Empire, observed critically that the men of Sparta always obeyed their wives. Imagine that. Oh my goodness. The clothing worn by uh, Spartan women to give them greater freedom of movement seemed immodest to other Greeks. So you could put down that Greek historians were appalled by these freedoms that, that Spartan women had and that their clothing was considered immodest. Nonetheless, in other ways, Sparta may have been more restricted than Athens and other Greek city-states, particularly in its apparent prohibition of homosexuality. At least, this was the assertion of the Athenian writer Zasaphon, or Z- Xenophon, who stated that Spartan's legendary founder, Lycuricus caused lovers to abstain from sexual intercourse with boys. Elsewhere, however, homoerotic relationships were culturally approved and fairly common for both men and women, although this did not prevent their participants from entering heterosexual marriages as well. The ideal heterosexual relationship between an older man and a young adolescent boy was viewed as limited in time, for it was supposed to end when the boy's beard began to grow. Unlike contemporary Western societies where sexuality is largely seen as an identity, The ancient greeks viewed sexual choice more casually and as a matter of taste sparta clearly was a patriarchy with women serving as breeding machines for its military system and lacking any form of role in public life but it was a lighter patriarchy than that of athens the joint effort of men and women seemed necessary to maintain a huge class of helots in a permanent subjugation so you can put down that because sparta had so many slaves the joint effort between men and women was necessary. Death in childbirth was considered the equivalent of death in battle, for both contributed to the defense of Sparta and both were honored alike. In Athens, on the other hand, growing freedom and democracy were associated with the strengthening of male-dominated, property-owning household. And within that household, the cornerstone of Athenian society, men were expected to exercise authority. Doing so required increasingly severe limitations and restrictions on the lives of women. Together, the case of Athens and Sparta illustrate how the historical record appears in a different light when viewed through the lens of gender. Athens, so celebrated for its democracy and philosophical rationalism, offered little to its women, whereas Sparta uh, often condemned for its militarism and virtual enslavement of the hillots provided a somewhat wider scope for the free women of the city. So, just to recap, you should have that Athens had limitations on women, that they were excluded from public life. They could not be involved in legal matters. They had to have a guardian represent them. Uh, the land was passed through male heirs, and they were restricted to the home. Marriage was usually in their mid-teens, and they married older men. Whereas in Sparta, they possessed more freedoms... Because of the fear of helot or slave rebellions. And they were, um, what's the word? They were honored for being able to bear sons, strong sons. They participated in public sporting events. They were not secluded or segregated the way that they were in Athens. They married men their own age, so they would be more on like an equal basis and they had more authority in the household and that concludes this episode of the time machine talk show thank you so much for listening and as always i will be available in the learning commons this week monday through thursday from four to five if you have any questions or if i can help you further